0: All right, so today we're talking about finding God in our minds. Finding God in our minds. Uh, Carissa last week talked about finding God in nature. He's all around and can be seen through nature. Today we're going to talk about a relationship with God and finding God in our minds. Something Carissa said last week that uh, resonated, she said something like, this is a paraphrase, that God is everywhere and all around us and within us always. God is everywhere and all around us and within us always. So finding God really isn't all that hard because He is everywhere and all around us and within us. It's just a matter of focus. It's a matter of attention. It's a matter of intentionality because He is literally everywhere. Now sometimes we know that, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel that, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we experience that, sometimes we don't. And all that's okay because we're physical creatures and God is spirit. And so as physical creatures, sometimes it's difficult for us to find the spiritual in our everyday physical life. And so we're going to talk over the summer about finding God in in everything, everywhere, within us, and it's going to be a good time. But we do need to make a decision to find God everywhere and all around and within. It's a decision. It's an intentionality that says, God, I I know you're everywhere and all around and within, but I, I just want to focus and I want to find and I want to discover who you are through everything around us, through everything within us. And, and it does require focus. And I'll be honest with you, uh, the dynamic of human focus is very interesting because we tend to focus on the physical, and we tend to focus on the immediate. And sometimes a relationship with God isn't on the physical, and it's not on the immediate. It's a deeper, richer, spiritual worldview kind of experience. And so it's a matter of shaping our focus to say, God, I'm going to find you. You're right here, but I'm going to find you. In 1999, there was a groundbreaking study on human attention, how humans pay attention, what humans pay attention to. And I'm going to show you the actual video from 1999. So it is really low production by current standards. There's no music, so it's awkwardly quiet. But I want you to, to follow along. Some of you may have seen this. It's been out there for, for a very long time. But for those of you who haven't, just kind of, you know, follow along here. It's about what you pay attention to. So there are three people in white shirts passing a basketball and three people in black shirts passing a basketball. And they're all moving, so you've got to really pay attention. So the question is, how many times do people on the white team pass the basketball? All right? Got it? Pretty simple. Now, this is, again, the most low production Probably the most boring minute of, of your, your entire church experience. But um, check this out. How many times do people on the white team pass the basketball? Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it, but did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. So, uh, roughly half the people missed the gorilla, and I have to be honest with you, um, when I first watched the video, I missed the gorilla, because I'm, I'm focused, okay, I've got to get this answer right. How many times does the ball get passed? And you don't even see what's, I mean, a gorilla pounding his chest and leaving, and we don't see it. Because we tend to focus on the immediate. We tend to focus on the right now. And when the world is telling us to focus on certain things, that's where our attention goes. And so we tend to miss maybe what's obvious, or we tend to miss, in this case, the deepest and richest parts of life, which is connecting with God in powerful ways and finding God and all of the good things that come in our life as a result. Uh, Jeremiah 29:13 says this, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. It's a promise of God. I'm everywhere in everything. I'm within you, so I'm not hiding. So if you look for me, you will find me. And where can we find God? We can find God right in our own minds. Our relationship with God is entirely in our mind. Entirely. Krista talked about finding God in nature, and that is absolutely true. But when we find God in nature, we're processing that in our minds. And so when we're experiencing nature and seeing God in nature, it's our mind that is doing the process, and it's in our mind that we're connecting through nature. So everything about our relationship with God is in our mind. So I'm going to do a little mental exercise with you, and uh, there's just three quick parts to this. Uh, So follow along if you can. At this very moment in your mind, when you think about God, what is the image that your mind brings up? So when I say God, what is the image in your mind? And for some of you, it would be a, a bright light, just a bright, blazing light, right? Uh, that God is maybe not so personal, but God is very powerful and very pure. Maybe for some of you, your image is just the cosmos, the vastness of cosmos. God is just huge and eternal. Maybe for some of you, there's, there's nothing at all. You just don't have an image of God. It's just more of a, a, a thought or an awe. Uh, For me, as a child of the 80s, growing up in a church, it's the image of a gigantic white figure on a huge throne looking condemningly on the world, right? What's the image of God? Now, for some of you, you might have a kind face. You might have an image of of Jesus or artwork or a movie you saw about Jesus, and, and it's the face of Jesus that is warm and kind, loving and forgiving. What is the image in your head? The image in your head is you interacting with God. That is finding God in your mind, and and that image may be helpful. It may not be helpful. It may lean towards what is true about God. It may lean towards what is untrue about God, but our image of God is in our mind and makes a big difference. Second part of the mental exercise, at this very moment when you think about God, what is the first word or two that comes to your mind? So when I say God... What is the first word or two that comes to your mind? For some of you who might have been raised in, in high church environments or more rigid church environments, you might immediately say things like, well, God is holy and God is righteous and God is perfect and God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and he is eternal. Big high thoughts about God. Brothers of you who might have been raised in a church that was a little more intimate, a little more relational focused, uh, you might have words like father or friend or savior or gracious or Kind. So, what are the words that you initially use about God? That is you finding God in your own mind and relating with Him. Third part of this mental exercise. If I were to ask you to pray in silence right now, first of all, that would be very awkward in church for you to pray on your own in silence. But if I did ask you to do that and you started praying right now, just you and God, what would your approach to prayer be right here and right now? How would you begin your prayer? For those of you who might have been raised in churches that were very focused on, on sin and sin management, uh, you might be very focused on the things you've done wrong and sense a distance from God and, God, I need to confess my sin and I'm very sorry and I repent of that sin. I got to get right with you. That might be your first approach to prayer. Others of you might have a different approach to prayer and it might be, again, a little more personal. God, thank you for just being my father. Thank you for being my friend and just enjoying God. Some of you might be going through a hard time right now and your first approach to prayer is, God, I need you, I need your comfort, I need your peace. Will you help me in this time of need? Others of you just might be grateful. You have a prayer life with God and you're just, it's light and easy and kind of fun and God, just thank you for who you are and thank you for your grace in my life and thank you for this life I've got, right? Your approach to prayer, that is you finding God in your mind. The images about God, the words about God, your approach in prayer is all in your mind and that's how we find God and how we relate with him. And thankfully, God wants us to experience all that, and he wants us to grow in all of that, in our minds, connecting with him. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says this. His purpose, God's purpose, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps, get this, feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. It's kind of cool, right? God basically says, hey, I'm a, I'm a wide-open door, and I'm a wide-open book. If you seek me, you find me, as Jeremiah says. And what Acts 17 says is, is the very purpose of my relationship with humankind is to be found. And so the invitation, as it says, is to feel our way towards God. Now, that word in the Greek is selaphao, which is kind of a complex word, meaning to mentally seek after. To mentally seek after. God says our whole relationship should be about you, the people I love very much, people I've made in my image, mentally seeking after me find me. It's almost like a um, sort of, you know, fun hide and seek, but God's not really hidden. It's just that he's spirit. And so it's just a challenge to find him, but he's right here. We just have to look. We just have to pay attention. We have to be intentional about finding him. So God's purpose is for us to mentally seek after him. And, And what does that mean? It means believing things about God. What we believe about God is us finding God in our minds and experiencing a connection with God in our minds based on what we believe. And then living that out day to day, living out that relationship with God, spirit to spirit, mind to mind. Ephesians 4.23 says this, let the spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes. That is where we're at, thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God. God is saying, listen, my spirit is at work in your spirit. My spirit is at work in your mind in your attitudes, in your thoughts, put on this new nature to be like God. In other words, God says, I have given you this incredible mind that is made to connect with me. Mind to mind, spirit to spirit, created to be like God. Meaning we have got this incredible capacity as being the only creatures alive that can connect with God, spirit to spirit, mind to mind. That's our unique privilege, made in the image of God, which means we've got a brain that can spiritually and very literally connect and relate with the God of the universe. Isn't that just wild to think about? It's wild to think about. Because that's really the difference between humankind and other creatures. Other creatures have amazing physical forms. We have amazing physical forms. But the physical form of a human being is not all that much different than the physical form of other mammals. Our physical form, our physical bodies are absolutely remarkable, but they're fairly similar to the bodies and physical natures of other mammals. So that's not really what's very special about us. What's very special about us is right here. Somehow, way, the Creator made this thing with the ability to connect with God Himself. It's remarkable. And this isn't even really stuff of, of, of church and spirituality. This is stuff of science. Scientists have been racking their brains about our brains for hundreds and hundreds of years. I, I did a lot of reading this week about this, way, way, way too much, but it was fascinating. Uh, a journal from uh, Harvard said this: "The human brain is the most complex system in the known universe." And well, I looked into that. Is that really true? And absolutely, this is undeniable. Your human brain, brain three pounds of jelly in your skull, is more complex than any system in the universe, more complex than any galaxy, more complex than any structure of physics. Your brain is vastly more complex than any of it. And so science, the science community, particularly over the last maybe 50 years, has been diving into the brain. And how can the brain create Consciousness, right? How can the the brain physically create the sense that I exist and I am here and I'm a human being? And where did I come from? And what's the meaning of life? And relating you with you another person, person to person, and spirit to spirit, thinking transcendent thoughts of God, and where did I come from and, and who's my creator and what must he be like and what must he want? And where am I going when I die? I mean, all these things. Right here in the brain. It is remarkable. The most complex system in the known universe. And science has no idea how it works. No idea. Now, they might, but I read very recent articles from very respected journalists and scientists are going, I don't know. I don't know how consciousness is created. I read an article uh, this last week. I'm going to read it to you for those of you who are, you know, geeking out on this. You're going to like this. For those of you who are not, just go to sleep. It'll be over in two minutes. We'll wake you up. Get this. It's really cool. Human consciousness obeys none of the usual rules of science. It doesn't seem to be physical. It can't be observed except from within by the conscious person. It can't even be described. The mind, Rene Descartes concluded, this is hundreds of years ago, must be made of some special immaterial stuff that didn't abide by the laws of nature. It had been bequeathed to us by God. Now, that's hundreds of years ago, right? Well, we must know a lot more now. Uh, We don't. This religious and rather hand-wavy position known as Cartesian dualism remained the governing assumption until the 18th century in the early days of modern brain study. But it was always bound to grow unacceptable to an increasingly secular scientific establishment that took physicalism, or this thought that only physical things exist, as its most basic principle. And yet, even as neuroscience gathered pace in the 20th century, No convincing alternative explanation was forthcoming. There remains some, quote, extra ingredient beyond the physical to human consciousness. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to discover something at some point that might explain in a physical way human consciousness, but I'm just telling you right now, no one has any idea why this mind works the way it works, why we're conscious, self-aware, transcendent beings trying to relate with and connect with our Creator. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. So whether there is some physical mechanism that God put in our brain or whether there is some spiritual stuff, you know, whatever that is, call it a soul or a spirit, something quite magical takes place in our brains to connect with God in a conscious, transcendent way. So how do we connect with God? What is the definition of that relationship? Romans 8:15 and 16 This verse ought to be seared in your brain forever. Get this. This is how we are to relate with God in our minds. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. You should not be afraid of God. You are not a slave of God. You're free. How are we free? Well, instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, or Dad, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's kids. That's finding God in our mind. In our mind, we believe what Romans 8 said, and in our our mind, we've defined the relationship. I'm not a fearful slave of God. I don't need to be afraid of God, right? He's my father. He says, you're my adopted daughter. You're my adopted son. That's the nature of a relationship. I am always for you. I am kind. I am generous. I am gracious. I am forgiving. I am what every perfect parent should be towards their child. That is me to you. Believe that in your mind, and in your mind do not fear me. In your mind, do not consider yourself a slave to me. You're free. And enjoy this relationship, father to child. Incredible. It's all right here in our minds, defined as a relationship between a father and a child. So how do we find God in our minds? We find God in our minds through a lifelong journey of belief. Something, yeah, okay, that's completely my fault. Chris, I blame you for something I just did. It starts in our minds, and I think it starts with Romans 8. And Romans 8 says, I'm a child of God, that's where it starts, and then we evaluate, are we believing things about God that are healthy? Are we believing things about God that are aligned with finding who he really is? Am I on this incredible and incredibly fun journey of discovering God in my mind? Now, I'm gonna talk about a couple of things that might make some of you feel a little uncomfortable, and That's okay. I love making people feel a little uncomfortable. I think it's going to be good though. So hang on. I'm going to ask us to change what we believe often, to change what we believe, to embrace changing what we believe. Because if we're going to talk about finding God in our minds, we're not talking about a brain that is stuck. We're not talking about a belief that is stuck. We're not talking about a relationship with God that is stuck. We're talking about this dynamic, very fun adventure of discovering more and more about God. And we'll talk all summer about how to find God and this, this, and this, but it begins by a mind setting itself on discovering more about God, which means over time, we might discover some new things about God that we might want to consider. We might discover that there's some things we believe about God that we're not comfortable with anymore, and so we challenge that and maybe even change that. But people do not want to change what they believe about God. It is very difficult to change what we believe about God. Because belief about God is often passed on from our parents. And their belief was passed on by their parents and their parents and their parents. So it's this very generational thing where this is kind of what we believe. This is what this family believes. And for those of you uh, who, you know, have been somewhat thoughtful about your own faith, you might have asked the question, well, do I just believe in Jesus or do I just believe in the Bible because I was born in America to this family? And you know what the answer to that question is? Yes. (laughs) Most of what we believe is just passed on, right? And let's not fight that. Let's embrace that. But then to say, okay, well, if most of what I believe is just passed on by my parents and the church I happen to be raised in, that's great. I can kind of accept that and I can actually appreciate that, but I don't have to be stuck there. Why would I want to be stuck there? Maybe somebody got some things wrong. I guarantee somebody got some things wrong, right? I guarantee in this sermon there's a bunch of stuff wrong, right? We're just human beings trying our best, right? And we follow Jesus and we've got the Bible, but can we embrace this adventure, this lifelong adventure of learning and growing and being challenged? A lot of our worldview is shaped by our religious thinking. It's hard to change. It is hard to change. And then if faith happens to transition into adulthood, and for about half the people raised in a faith environment, that transitions into into their adulthood. And so if young people, turning adults, decide to make faith part of their family life, they will, nine times out of ten, gravitate to a church that affirms what they learned growing up in children's ministry and youth ministry. Why? Because I think we like being stuck. We like the comfortability of being stuck, and to not be challenged, and to not grow, and to just have this place of maybe safety and security that this is just what I believe and I don't want to be challenged and I don't want to grow and I don't want to change. And I understand that, but, but you know, let's think a little different. Wouldn't it be better maybe to say, Hey, let's just choose to make this a wonderful faith adventure. Let's just choose to, to, to read outside of our normal little box to think outside of our normal little box and to discover something new and maybe entertain believing something a little different. So here's a thought to consider. You can and probably should change what you believe about God over time. If you believe the same things about God now that you did when you were in youth group, for those of you who are older than youth, than youth group, it's probably time to stretch yourself a little bit. And I'm not saying change for the sake of change or just change for the fun of it, but you know, why not learn and grow and discover some new things and entertain new things, why not? It could be fun. It could be fun. I mean, think about it. If, if you um, related with human beings the same way you did in high school as a married person or as a parent, you're in some deep doo-doo. You've got to grow. You've got to learn. you got to change. What's your job? What's your profession? Right? If you executed your job right now based on the knowledge you had in high school, you'd be a terrible employee. You have to grow. You have to change. You have to stretch. So why not grow and change and stretch when it comes to our faith? Very very often we're afraid of that. But here Jesus comes and Jesus says, Hey, I want you to change what you believe. Jesus was shouting literally from mountaintops, Change what you believe, because the way people believed before Jesus was a wreck, a train wreck. There were no trains, it was a wreck. But he says, change what you believe. You're believing things that aren't aligned with the mind of God. Your mind is not aligned with the mind of God. Find God, and Jesus is urging us to find God. And so he's challenging all these religious leaders who were stuck, and they, were, they had the entire nation stuck in this religious tradition. And, and so Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Nicodemus says to Jesus, you're bothering me, Jesus. I'm a religious leader. I'm very happy being stuck right? In their religious tradition, you memorize things as a five-year-old, and and the goal was to never change until death. And the goal was to pass it on to your kids, and the same stuff, and the same stuff, and the same stuff, all the same traditions, and all the same laws reloaded generation after generation. And Jesus says, enough. Change what you believe. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and they have this little interaction. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you are a respected Jewish leader. He's being kind. That's the sandwich before the tough stuff. And yet you don't understand basic things. If you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, you won't believe if I tell you about heavenly things. Jesus looks at this religious leader and says, you are stuck. And then later in Hebrews, it says, let's stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again and again and again and again and again. again. Can we stop just regurgitating the same basic things over and over again? But a lot of people want that, a lot of people find security in that. Just remind me of what I grew up with again and again and again, and we're gonna call that church and that's gonna be my comfort zone. I understand that, I get that, and a lot of people frankly need that, right? But Jesus is saying, change what you believe. Hebrews is saying, change and grow and stretch. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamentals. Grow, stretch, challenge, but it's understandably scary. To change what we believe for a lot of reasons. What we believe about God defines our worldview, and it's exceedingly difficult to change. So, for a lot of people, if we entertain changing what we believe about God, that's going to impact a lot of things because our worldview is based on our belief in God. So, it feels unsteady. What we believe about God is often the only stable thing in our increasingly chaotic world. I had a good conversation with uh, my wife just uh, yesterday, or the day before, that a lot of people just really want church to be the one thing that's not getting messed around with, right? You, you, you read the news, you hear the news, and it's just, it's, it's kind of chaotic, and everything's changing, and everything's unsteady, and you go to work, and there's all kinds of pressure and whatever, and you got all the pressures and expectations of family, and can't I just go to church and hear what I heard as a kid and just not be bothered, <laughs> right, with being challenged? And I get it, totally get it. We've been told believing the right things about God is the way we are saved, so we might be afraid to believe something different. This is actually a big deal, particularly in the evangelical world, because a lot of the evangelical church world is, hey, you believe these things and you'll be saved. So pray a prayer of believing these things and you will be saved. And so the concept that we could or should change some things we believe to grow in maturity is really unsteady. If my salvation is depending upon me getting things right... If I'm going to change what I believe, I might not be right, and that's going to potentially get me in trouble with God. That whole line of thinking is a disaster, <laughs> right? It's a disaster. But if we can be free from that, and, and we can be free to think that, well, maybe salvation is not about passing some doctrine test, but salvation is, is living in the pleasure of God's grace and goodness through Jesus, not through what I do, then I can enjoy the journey of finding God in my mind and maybe consider changing some things to be more aligned with the mind of God. We might think we're right about our beliefs in God, so admitting we might have been wrong is hard. (laughs) This is a big barrier. Particularly for people who have been in a certain faith kind of lane for decades, it is so hard to think, you know, after all these years, I might have been wrong on some things. That is so difficult. So difficult for people, and I understand it. But here's the reality. This is a newsflash. Everyone is wrong about what they believe about God. Everybody's wrong. Now, they might not be wrong about everything. They might have gotten some things right. They might have gotten some things wrong. But is there one person alive who has it all right about God? I mean, can we really think through that for a minute? Nobody has it all right about God. Everybody's wrong about something. So can't we have the humility to say, hey, I'm wrong about stuff, I'm right about stuff? So? Let's walk this fun journey of trying to get things a little bit more right and trying to discover where things might not be aligned with the mind of God. Let's have fun with it, right? Everyone's wrong about something. And, and you know, for me, I, I know I'm wrong about stuff. I don't know what I'm wrong about. I think everything I believe is right. Right? <laughs> But I thought that 30 years ago when I started in ministry and 30 years later, say, oh, I got a lot of stuff wrong 30 years ago. And I got a lot of stuff wrong 20 years ago. And I got a lot of stuff wrong 10 years ago. And 10 years from now, I'm probably going to say, I got a lot of stuff wrong on July, whatever it is today. And you certainly, for the love of God, should not take everything I say as the gospel truth. I'm trying, but I got this three pound of jelly and I've got the word of God and I've got Jesus to look at and I'm trying my best, but I'm just a person trying his best. Right? I don't have some spiritual you know, download directly from God and you know, handing this perfect thing to you every week. <laughs> Just a person trying and having fun in a community trying to find God through our minds and through Scripture and through Jesus. Here's what 1 Corinthians 2 says, who can know the mind of God? Who knows enough to teach Him? This is the Apostle Paul actually being kind of funny because there's all these people out there arrogantly saying, I know, I know the truth. I know the truth. I just believe what the Bible says. I know the truth. And Paul's saying, really, you know the mind of God. You're the one that knows the mind of God. Why don't you teach God who he is? It's kind of funny. No? Okay. <laughs> You're so arrogant and so right. Teach God who he is. That's just, I don't, okay, you'll, you'll get it later. But the Apostle Paul is saying, if anybody's arrogant enough to think they got it nailed, they're probably the ones who are the most wrong. And I can tell you this, being in full-time ministry for 30 years, knowing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors all over the country, the more dogmatic or arrogant a pastor is about what they're teaching, the more unlike Christ they seem. It's remarkable. And so, I think there needs to be humility, and I think there needs to be grace, and I think there there needs to be an understanding that we are just trying to figure it out in our minds, connected with the Spirit of God, with the Bible in hand, and with Jesus as our North Star, we're trying our best. And let's enjoy the journey, right? Let's enjoy the journey of finding God in our minds. I came across this picture this last week, and I thought it was pretty fun. Old picture from 1961. This is JFK in the Oval Office of the White House with his two young kids. So you can imagine being very young kids. There's uh, John Jr. and Caroline, and they're just playing in the White House. Who is dad to these kids in this picture? Just dad. And they're having a good time. He's smiling and clapping about something. This is what parents do, you smile and clap for your kids, doing all kinds of goofy things. They're just dad, just dad. You think when they're teenagers, they believe something different about their dad? <laughs> President of the United States, right? Um, sadly by that time would have been assassinated and all that he went through with Bay of Pigs and nuclear standoffs and going to the moon by 1969, I mean, you think they believe something different about their dad when they were a teenager and maybe believe something different about their dad when they were an adult? And so the way we grow up and we know more about our parents and we maybe appreciate more about our parents or understand more about our parents as we grow in our relationship and experience with God, certainly don't you think we should believe something maybe different as we go? Something more mature, perhaps? Something more aligned with Jesus? Let's be open to that. Something else I want to uh, throw your way. Our beliefs about God aren't about making him happier with us but about Him making us happier. Get this. Some of you are going to have to have a whole mind change based on this slide. A lot of us grew up with the understanding, I think a misunderstanding, that what God wants from us is to be right. We might have been told that. We might have heard that from pulpits. We might have been taught that in youth group, that God wants us to be right. This is the right way to believe. This is the right way to live. And so if we are right in what we believe and we are right in how we live, God's going to be happy with us. So the whole relationship is defined by God is unhappy with us because we're not living right and we're not believing right. So if we start to live right and we start to believe right, then God is going to turn us around upside down and he's going to be happier toward us and then he'll save us from condemnation. That's kind of the the paradigm. I'm asking you to change the paradigm and to say Believing things about God that are aligned with who he really is isn't about God being made happier because we believe the right things, but it just makes us happier because we believe the right things. And God wants us to be happier. God wants us to thrive. God wants us to do well in this world. And the more our mind is aligned with the mind of God, the better off we're going to be in this world. The freer we're going to be in this world. The more the love of God is going to become a reality in our lives, and so the more the love of God is going to be a part of our lives because our minds are aligned with who God is. Really is as opposed to maybe what we've been taught. And that whole journey is a humble journey of discovery, finding God in our minds. So here's a point I want you to really get. And it's the longest major point I've ever put on a slide in my life. It's four lines long. What if, as Jesus says, God is a heavenly father who wants his children to thrive. And the more we grow and mature through a lifelong journey of finding God in our mind, the better off we will be. In other words, God is not some insecure deity needing us to be right about Him. That's how a lot of us grew up, is God is sort of an insecure God, and He really needs us to believe the right things about Him. And when we believe the right things about Him, He goes, oh, now I'm happy with you, and now you will be saved, and now you'll be free from condemnation. What if God is just fine without us believing the right things about him? What if God is super secure in himself? He knows who he is, he doesn't need us to believe the right things about him, but what if God is a father who says, you know what? My beautiful creation with these beautiful minds, the more your mind is aligned with who I really am, the better off you're gonna be. So if you believe things that are aligned with who I really am, you're gonna be great. It's a whole paradigm shift. So what's the key to aligning our mind with the mind of God? It's very simple, and it's one word, and that is Jesus. I don't mean to sound trite. I don't mean to sound overly simplistic. But the way our minds are aligned with the mind of God is we obsess on Jesus. I read 1 Corinthians 2 earlier, but I didn't read the whole thing. For who can know the mind of God and who knows enough to teach him? That's a rhetorical question, and Paul gives an actual answer. But we understand these things because we have the mind of Christ. What is Paul saying? You want to know who God is in your mind? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If you want to know the mind of God, obsess on Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Know the life of Jesus, the priorities of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to, to bring to Obsess on Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you're done, then what? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until you think you have got largely... The the image of God in your mind because you know Jesus. The words of God in your mind because you know Jesus. You know how to pray in a very free and fun and light and easy way because you know Jesus, right? You're unburdened by the religious weight of guilt and shame and separation and God is a brooding judge and now you see him as a heavenly father because you have, have obsessed on Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And once you get Jesus just deeply ingrained in who you are, then you could read the Old Testament as kind of a precursor leading up to Jesus. And then you could read the rest of the New Testament as a commentary on Jesus. By the way, that's a little preview of Summer Seminary. It's going to be great. July 27th. Jesus calls us to change what we believe because what we believe very often is so harmful to us. So harmful to us. Because before Jesus, everyone believed God was distant. Get this. Before Jesus, everyone believed God was distant. Jesus changed what we believe, showing us God is near. Everyone believed God was angry with us. But Jesus changed what we believe, showing us that God is kind. Everyone believed God was a harsh judge. Jesus changed what we believe, showing us that God is a loving Father Everyone believed God demanded strict obedience. Jesus changed what we believe, showing us that God simply wants us to know we're loved. Everyone believed God was punishing us with suffering. Jesus changed what we believe, showing that God suffers with us, and he was crucified. Everyone believed that God would destroy the world in wrath, but Jesus changed what we believe, showing that God is resurrecting a world he so loves, starting with the resurrection of Jesus himself we could change what we believe. And if we change what we believe, we become truly, truly alive. We're gonna close with a song that is a a very, very powerful song. Um, I'll be honest with you, Evan, I'm not impressed with a lot of songs. Really? (laughs) I don't have the courage to write one, so I could be a commentator. But this one nails it. This one nails this subject in a very profound way, and it's different even musically.
1: I mean, usually when you hear like a a contemporary Christian song, like you'll hear um, there's like this, you know exactly what's coming next. You can feel it coming next. And it's meant to be that way so that it's easy to sing along to. This was not written in that way. It is (laughs) so out of time and kind of drug out. And it's really, really cool. But then not only that, but the content like you're talking about is so different than what you would normally hear with the contemporary Christian song. It really breaks it down to like, this is what we thought. And we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you're this is better. what we
0: thought we were wrong, but you were better yeah. because we're seeing Jesus. And there's really three parts of this that I, I, I want to focus on. One is this part in the song early that says, We thought you were coming with a sword, but you came as a child. As a child. And so this is where, you know, at the time, and even honestly, unfortunately today, people think that faith is about force and yeah. power and control and politics and government and sometimes even, even violence. And this says, no, you didn't come like that. You came as a peasant child. That's the real Jesus. Absolutely. I mean, growing up, you think, like, I'm in the army of the Lord.
1: You sing these songs, right? And, and you think about army and you think about, like, okay, we're going to, you know, that, the violent take it by force. Like, yeah. you know, you use yeah. these scriptures Jake and all man. these things. And you think it's about that conquering thing, but it, it then you start to realize and you start to read who Jesus was. And it's like being in the army of the Lord is like this there's no weapons here. This is this is
0: all of this is is spreading this love and joy and showing the world that same light, you know. And so we could've we could have missed Jesus by trying to find him in power and trying to find him in government and conquering and winning when he actually came as a peasant child born in a in a barn. And then the song focuses on on Mary. So this is uh, Mary, uh, who is uh, in this house filled with people. And there's food and there's activity and who knows how many people, but the scene is probably dozens of people and, and they're busy with everything. And yet Mary pauses and Mary stops and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And she says, I'm not gonna lose you in a crowd. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find you in my mind. I'm gonna focus on you, Jesus, and I'm gonna be with you.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's such a beautiful picture of saying that, because sometimes you can almost feel like you have... Um, that that intimate relationship, that close relationship with Jesus, is almost like unattainable, or maybe I don't know. Like it kind of feels distant sometimes. Um, and this is one of those, uh, like a song that beautifully represents this. Like this is this that close relationship with Jesus is yours. You can have that so much so that. He could be in a crowd, and you're so close with who he is and so near to his heart that I'm not missing you in a crowd. I know exactly where you are at all times.
0: That's finding God in our minds by noticing Jesus right here and right now. And then the final part to focus on is uh, these disciples are in a boat, and there's a storm, and and here's this figure on the water and through the clouds, and they're freaking out because they think they're going to die. They're panicking, and it's Peter who says, I think that's Jesus, and he just pops right out of the boat. He says, I'm gonna be the first one yeah. to you and I'm gonna see you on the waters. I'm gonna see you in the clouds, which means I'm gonna see you even in the suffering that you're here, that you're with me. And with all my fear and all my anxieties, I'm jumping out and I'm just going towards you. It's something about knowing,
1: like you see that that's
0: Jesus. You know that goodness and you know, as the song
1: says, that you're better. Yeah. I, I know that all of this that I have to even, I have to face these waves to get to you <laughs> yeah. kind of deal, but, but you're better, you're better.
0: So just enjoy the song, sit down, enjoy it, soak it in. Uh, if you get to a point where you can mouth some of the lyrics, It'll be even better. So let me pray and we'll sing. God, we thank you for our time together to just consider enjoying this journey, this lifelong journey of finding you in our minds, spirit to spirit, with these beautiful brains connected to you in very mystical, inexplicable ways. You've given us these brains, spirit to spirit, connecting with our Creator. And God, help us to have the humility to. just know we get a lot of stuff wrong and that's okay and we'll get some things right the more we focus on your son Jesus we will get more and more right and our minds will be more aligned with your mind and our mind will be more aligned with the truth and and our lives will be better because our lives will be enriched by the knowledge that you love us the way Jesus says you love us as a heavenly father always for us never angry judgmental condemning you forgive us without condition You embrace us. You look at us and call us your daughter and call us your son. And so, God, the more our mind is aligned with your mind because we see Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with Jesus, we are going to truly thrive in this life and be a light of heaven in the world around us. God, that is better, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.
2: my Savior in a tomb
0: What a, uh, a great way to end uh, our time together and uh, just really think, uh, how can I focus more on Jesus and, and find him in my mind and align my mind with the heart of God and what difference that would make in our lives and in our families and our church and community. It's a fun thing to think about. Yeah, I remember when I started changing my mind about yeah. what I believed and how that impacted
1: my life and my family's life and my journey with God. And so maybe today, you've changed your mind, or you're thinking about changing your mind, man, come talk to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'll be over here, and we'd love to meet you. Scott, I
0: know. Yeah, absolutely. Be. We've got a prayer corner over there with great men and women who'd love to bear burdens with you and, and just bring comfort and peace. And uh, my wife and I are always there in the corner, and so uh, if you're fairly new to the church, haven't met you, it would be my pleasure.
1: Yep, and the uh, Rancho Gear store is open. Remember, if you're new, you get a free shirt. Hey, if you're not nice. Come <laughs> visit us and support Thrive and get some new summer gear. All right. Can't Thanks. wait to see you next
0: week. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex.